This is episode 22 of The New Normal. Our guest, Chris Stallings. He has been a wealth advisor for 20 years, graduated from a top business school in 2000 with a degree in finance. Soon after, he began his advanced training with Morgan Stanley in the World Trade Center. This episode, we actually cover his 9-11 story. You'll want to stick around for that. Chris founded his first wealth management firm in 2003. Five years later, he started his current firm, Abundance LLC. Chris, his wife, Melissa, and their two daughters live outside of Atlanta. Chris is devoted to helping people build the legacy they've always dreamed about. In this episode, we're going to cover what it's like to be a wealth advisor in a crisis, how to start investing, investing when you don't like numbers, the role of a financial wealth advisor, the dangers of investing, and the gamification of trading platforms like Robinhood. And we'll get into your future. What is your vision? Enjoy this episode of The New Normal. We are supported by Mammoth Fuel. Mammoth Fuel Bars were created with people like you in mind using only natural ingredients and zero artificial junk. We took no shortcuts in developing this highly functional and portable fuel bar. What are the benefits, you may ask? Portable on-the-go fuel, post-workout recovery, boost cognitive function, aids in weight loss, anti-inflammatory, and low sugar. With 13 grams of protein and only 4 net carbs, Mammoth Fuel is the perfect meal, snack, and energy bar where you'd like to go. Try Mammoth Fuel at mammothfuel.com. Welcome to the new normal, where we're talking current events, finances, philosophy, preparedness, and more. My name is Sal, and with me as always is my good friend, Quentin. Each week we dive into those various topics and bring you an inspiring person or message to navigate the world with a positive mindset in this new normal. Thanks for spending some time with us today. Now, here we go. everybody to the new normal. My name is Sal and with me as always is my good friend Quentin. Say hi to everybody Quentin. What's up? Quentin we've got a great insightful guest today. I'm really excited about it. He is a financial advisor. He's a wealth advisor with Abundance LLC. His name is Chris Stallings. Uh, I think given the atmosphere that we're living in, I think very early on when we started this show, a lot of the focus that we talked about was the financial game and what was happening to everybody's money, the stock market crashing, whether or not we were going to be trading sideways for the next two years. I mean, these are all just hyperbole that people were talking about when this first started to, to really break. Now we're about six, seven months into this. And some of the stuff that we talked about in our very first episode is really starting to come to fruition. So I'm really excited to bring on uh, Mr. Chris Stallings. He is going to be joining us on this episode. Chris, say hi to everybody. Well, hey, how's it going? Thank you so much for joining us. Can you tell the audience a little bit about who you are, what you do? And the audience needs to understand there will be a full disclosure in the show notes, but obviously because you're a fiduciary, because you're a financial wealth advisor, there are certain things that we can and can't talk about on an absolute basis, but there will be things that might be prefaced with these are Chris's opinions and these are some uh, places and resources that you might be able to look at. Can you, can you go into that a little bit? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So a little bit about me. Uh, the Reader's Digest version is that I've wanted to be a financial advisor since I was seven, uh, nine years old, actually. Wow. Um, it was a little bit of a financial hardship that caused my parents to uh, relocate to Atlanta, end up getting a degree uh, from a pretty well-respected business school in finance, and then started off at Morgan Stanley in 2000, able to do my advanced training in the World Trade Center before it fell. In fact, I stood where the second plane hit one year and one day to the day before it actually went down. Oh my goodness. Um, and so since 2000, I've been a wealth advisor, uh, owning my own firm since 2003 and uh, starting the company that I run now back in 2008. Also a really good time to start a financial services business. So um, tell me what that was like. I mean, I, I didn't even realize that part about you were standing on the same area that the plane was going to hit. What was going through your mind during 9-11 when all of that was happening you're just sitting there looking at your potential office floor that you could have been standing in right there were stories about mark Wahlberg was supposed to be on the plane that was going to be yep. flying right into the pentagon you know what was your story of holy crap that could have been me yeah man so so it's uh, it's where i stood at seven o'clock every morning and called guys like my older brother and my dad saying wow here i am in the i want to say it was the 65th floor of, of two world trade or one world trade. Uh, Morgan Stanley was the largest tenant uh, of the World Trade Center complex. And so uh, on Monday, September 10th, I had a meeting with the branch manager and I was awarded my first office. And um, I, I go in that day and uh, I had stuff all over the walls. As a guy recently out of college, you know, posters and things that you can imagine, college student transitioning to some kind of a professional. And so that day, instead of grabbing a diploma or what you would think you'd hang on your new office, I grabbed this black and white of the World Trade Center. And I carried that in that morning and I, and I hung it on the wall. And, uh, you know, I watched because uh, CNBC was in a satellite feed into our computers at Morgan Stanley. So I watched um the cnbc feed where the first plane hit and i was just shocked yeah. and then all the fear is creeping up of what else could this be and then i realized that one year ago to the very day i was actually standing where that that plane ended up hitting i think probably what 30 45 minutes later there was a little bit of an interval between um the explosions or the the impacts or whatever and so uh, my wife was in vet school at the time and I call her all nervous. I'm like, are you okay? You know, cause they're worried about schools and is this some crazy big terrorist thing? And, uh, she said, no, I'm home safely. I said, so weird, Melissa, I actually brought the world trade center picture here with me. And now it's literally gone. She said, honey, what's even going to be weirder is when you get home and you see the blank place on the wall where that frame once hung. So it hit home. Um, one of the other, uh, rookie financial advisors at that time. His, I think, cousin worked for Cantor Fitzgerald, and they were at the top of the World Trade Center. And so between that and my other buddy, who had just gotten back from his advanced training in our office, he had gotten back the Friday before that Tuesday. So it was front and center. And as brand new into the business uh, as I could be, it still was riveting and just no knowledge of how's this going to impact uh, our society and things like that. So it hit home really, really hard. That's amazing. And, and that's actually a really great segue for what we talk about on our podcast. Um, for our new listeners who are joining us from Chris's audience, the new normal has gotten this, and it really is, it has a negative 
connotation behind it. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it, right? We hear so much of get used to it, this is the new normal. And and with 9-11, that brought a whole lot of new normals for us. TSA was one of those things. We had to take off our shoes because of the shoe bomber. Now that we're in this post-corona, post-pandemic new normal, we have been trying to change our mindset, change our audience's mindset to understand that the new normal has positive connotations and it's about mindset. Talk to me a little bit about how you as a wealth advisor have shifted not only after 9-11, because obviously that was a huge catastrophic moment. I think the, the stock market paused for a few days, but then we also had the 2008 financial crisis. And now we're in this next financial crisis. Can you kind of walk me through as a wealth advisor, what's going through your head and, and how are your clients handling these ups and downs, right? We always hear about buy low, sell high, but everyone ends up buying high and selling low. That's right. I know that's kind of a loaded question, but how do you, how do you process these big swings and catastrophic unplanned pandemics and, you know, natural disasters and terrorist attacks? So, uh, I think that I was so young in 2001 as a professional that I just was still getting my bearings. So I kind of adapted. I think I, except for when the market has expanded so strongly uh, over a several year period, because the Federal Reserve is actually simulating, and we can talk more about that later. So except for these couple of expansions we've had, I basically started off um, May the 5th or so, whatever that Monday was after graduation in 2000. Well, the tech bubble had just started bursting. I believe the all-time high on the NASDAQ was like March of 2000. So then all of a sudden I'm starting as a financial advisor and things are correcting. You know, tech bubbles bursting, which took like 15 years for the, the tech bubble to finally recover. So like 2014 or something for it to finally rise back up. But, uh, and then, you know, September 11th happened literally one year later. And so all I knew was some type of warfare as far as, you know, the markets. I didn't really ever know, like the late 90s, where financial advisors began to think they had the Midas touch because Cisco just blew up. Every time something was an IPO, it blew up. Everything went great. And, and so I never really knew a time where it was easy. But, um, like, you know, you know what I mean? I don't know what I don't know. And so, but I think that really 2008 was the beginning of, realizing that I needed to take a different tact um, because we watched our clients uh, lose maybe, I don't know, 20 to 30%. Maybe, we're, we're, maybe we did better than some people, but there was a real frustration that I had because we built our own portfolios even back then. And I felt like with the amount of uh, due diligence that we had, the, the, the strategies that we implemented internally, the way we looked for investments, um, the way we diversified, the, the number of asset classes we had. Like, we, like I had protected my clients well against a correction like that. And so when you talk about responding to a new normal and, and what did that environment create, I realized pretty quickly that if, if clients still lost 20, 30%, most people are not okay with losing that money. Right. I mean, if you're a retiree, who in the world wants to lose 20, 30% of their assets or 20, 30% of their income or where is there a buffer where that's ever really okay? And so what you find if you do some study that people experience losses two times harder emotionally than they do successes. So them losing money weighed on them 
far greater than us being able to produce some type of increased return, uh, increased uh, return over a benchmark or whatever it was. They were like, great, good job. But when they lost, man, they suffered. And so I started studying endowments, whether it was Yale's endowment and Harvard's endowment. And I had found that David Swinson, who runs, uh, I believe it's Yale, uh, he had lost money for the first time in 30 years in 2008. So I went from like uh, cautiously wondering what in the world is going on, why did our clients go down like that, to almost now just ticked off. I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is not what I was taught. I have a degree in this. Morgan Stanley did some pretty decent training, modern portfolio theory. Why did they lose? And how did this guy actually go out and, uh, and build uh, a pension uh, I'm sorry, an endowment that ran so successfully for multiple decades without ever a single year of loss. And so they're very private about how they manage their money. But every now and again, you get some insights. Well, your typical financial advisor today, even today, they only run so many asset classes, right? They usually use stocks. They use some bonds. Maybe they do some real estate, maybe some alternative investments if they're kind of clever. But largely, they just have, let's say, three or four players on that football team. Well, David Swinson in 2008 had 22, between 21 and 22 different asset classes. And I thought, well, no wonder, you know, he's got 22 players out on the football field. Could you imagine what that game looks like with one side of the team with 22 players? You can run multiple strategies. You've got guys who just need to literally be ballast, just holding back right. uh, a line that don't have, you know, actual scoring ability. And so that's why these these huge like this is what one of the reasons that the wealthy keep getting wealthier right there's a list of them but so so about by about 2009 and 10 i began changing the way we manage money because what was supposed to keep you from losing money quote unquote uh really didn't do what it said it was going to do and we found that again uh in february and march of this year everything went down in fact, if you look at what corporate bonds did, and corporate bonds are supposed to be a little bit safer than stocks, that's what people get told. Mm -hmm. Corporate bonds had a, uh, a 10 sigma event, a 10 standard deviation event. And so without getting into the statistics, that just basically says, what's the probability of occurrence, right? What's the chances that that goes down as much as it did? Well, I know that uh, a seven sigma event is one in every 168 billion years. So it's dang near impossible or never occurs. Well, this was a 10 sigma event. What happened? In a matter of a couple of weeks, corporate bonds crashed over 20%. That's one of the reasons the Fed rushed to bail them out. So what I'm telling you, and one of the reasons I really value you guys speaking to a new normal and how you need to be really paying attention, is that coronavirus itself may affect some individuals. They might get sick. God forbid some people die. But our response to coronavirus is exposing a whole system of weakness Yes. And in the fundamentals of our nation and our finances. So I could keep going on about that for sure. But it's like, if you just keep doing the same things you've always done, you're going to get the same results. Well, my industry is programmed to just tell people to hold on. Just, okay, just ride it out. It's going to be okay. We're going to make it through this. And yeah, the world keeps on spinning. But in the meantime, uh, the stock market is also a great wealth transfer mechanism. So if you think for a second, that everyone in the world just threw their hands up when the market crashed and said, oh crap, well, we're just losing money. No, there are very shrewd individuals who are on the other side of all those trades that are profiting oh, when sure. everyone else is losing. 
And that's part of how we, and not to use Robinhood because it's this online trading platform, but I've always wanted to be like Robinhood, studying the wealthy, the multi-billionaires, the elite as much as you can see, mm -hmm. um, and breaking that down to clients who don't have a billion dollars to invest, right? Yep. And so- Well, that's what so we that's kept what hearing. We that's what we kept hearing over and over in, in March, April was buy the dip, buy the dip. It's going to go back up. We're going to have this V-shaped recovery. Yep. And- a lot of what you've said so far has been very sophisticated. So I'm going to pare it back down. And Sorry. no, no, not at all. I think that's brilliant. And, and I think we need to, we need to have that for, for our listeners because most of our listeners aren't necessarily laymen. But for those who are just absolutely terrified of money, right? We, we have this societal, I don't know what it is. We have this societal just fear of money like money is this bad thing we've been taught all our lives that money is is evil rather the root the the love of money is the root of all evil you know everyone always mixes that up but talk to me a little bit about someone like myself who only started investing almost a year ago now i knew what the stock market was but i always thought that it was this evasive thing that you just had to be in this certain club to, to be able to invest and what is investing and, and how do I, what does it even mean? And then you have platforms. I'm glad you brought up Robinhood that made it very easy for the everyday trader, you know, the $10 trader for Ford stock or something like that. Um, yeah. Talk to me a little bit about the, the mindset of someone who has never taken their finances seriously and what they should be doing or what they should have been doing Right. We, we can kind of talk about hindsight being 2020. Oh, no, I should have pulled out of the market or I should have gotten into the market or I should have done this. I should have done that. We can talk about all those woulda, coulda, shouldas. But right now, July 2020, someone who's not financially preparing themselves for winter, quote unquote, what should that person be doing or what are some steps that they can be taking to secure a better financial future for themselves, even if it's just a little bit at a time and, and using that compounding effect to, to accumulate the wealth? Uh, that's a great question. Thank you. Um, so, so let's say that I'm getting started, whether I'm 20 or 50, I'm new to investing. Uh, the, the beginning of investing is getting clear about why you're doing that. Mm. There's so many people who just invest because someone said that they should be doing something. And for some people that can work. I mean, if you're 30 years into a career in corporate America and you've had the 401k plan, and maybe you lucked out and had some good company stock, you could, that might work. You know, if you set aside 10, 15% or whatever it ends up being over that long and you you know, don't screw up too terribly, you might end up being okay. But that's like saying, I'm going to go to Home Depot and I need to build a house. Well, what are you building? I don't know. I need wood. I need some PVC pipe for plumbing. I need electrical cable. It's like, well, what for? Because I need indoor plumbing. You're not answering the question. What are you building? You would never start building a house and just, <laughs> just like going on a shopping spree through right. Home Depot without a quality supply list and the quantity of those supplies. Uh, so if you would never build a house or that that's like the most amateur way of doing it. And I've built a bench before by running into Lowe's and saying, Hey, I want some red Oak. And the guy looked at me funny. He's like, well, all right, so where's your blueprint? I was like, I don't have one. He goes, you can't build furniture quality, a quality piece of furniture 
um, without the blueprint. So the understanding what you really want out of life and what you want your money to do for you is the most important question that most people don't even answer. They just start going through the motions because someone smarter than them told them to. Yep. That's one of the reasons you get so screwed up is all of a sudden the market's tanking. You have no knowledge of what you're doing. You're freaking out. So you sell at the bottom, right? Or you start buying at the top because now everybody's talking about whatever yeah. it is. Robin Fear of missing or, out. <laughs> yeah, FOMO, total FOMO. So I think uh, if, you're, if you're new to it, whether you're in early to the game or late to the game, you got to figure out why you're doing it. So if it's a goal-based uh, investment, which is what it is for most people, if you're a young family, maybe it's some education thing or a daughter getting married or it's retirement, which is most, what most people point to, then you got to figure out what you want in retirement. So if you live on uh, $50,000 a year, do you want to have $50,000 a year at retirement? You know, you have to just, you have to actually, I think it was, um, golly, was it Eisenhower who said that plans are nothing and planning is everything. Case in point, Sal, if you guys had a fire in your house and you talked to your wife and do you have a family? Yes, I do. Six kids. Okay. You have you six kids? Six kids, five in the wow. house. One, one just moved out. <laughs> okay. Wow. Happy sheep will multiply. Good job, bro. Um, so, um, so, you know, maybe you have a plan if there's ever a fire, Hey, we're gonna, you guys go out the back window. We'll go out the back door. We'll go through the front door and we're all will rally, uh, at the front yard. Well, what if the fire's in a place where a kid can't run down the hall instead they go out the window. So that's where the plan itself didn't really work for them. But mm -hmm. the process of planning arrived or landed all of your children and wife uh, and yourself uh, safely in the front yard. So it's like planning so far out is sometimes hard, but it doesn't mean you don't do it. And most, most people are so wrapped up into social media and Amazon priming everything and it's express checkout and quick that they don't slow down enough to contemplate why they're actually doing it. So you get that clear, you start to answer a lot of other questions very, very quickly. So how much do I need to save? Well, how much do you want in the future? It, it only works that way, you know, you, and you can't guarantee what the returns are going to be. So you're going to have to be mindful of, you know, the return that you saw from the bottom of March uh, through June 8th, that 30, 40, 50% rally, whatever the final number was at the June 8th point. Uh, that's not the classic um, stock market experience. It's no. mostly... February into March. So I could keep going with that and keep building it, but it's like, get your why down. What do you want in the future? Work your way backwards. One of the advantages that people getting started today have that I didn't have 20 years ago is that everything is on your phone. There's calculators out the wazoo models and they make it so uh, user-friendly that really it's on you to go get started. You know, yeah, you, that's the reality. You almost have to sit there and go through not necessarily a pros and cons but just answering a question and then asking yourself another question when you've answered that one and and you kind of yes. walk us through that step is you know why do i want to invest well because i want to retire okay well when do you want to retire by what year okay that's your yes. target retirement how much money are you going to need you know if you're yeah. withdrawing the the classic four percent at retirement from your investing you know are your are your capital gains or are your dividends reinvesting in such a way that you'll never run out you know those are questions that you just have to keep asking and keep asking and and you may not get an answer but at least you're asking the questions and, and you're taking the steps what about someone who just 
you know, they, they don't have the time or necessarily the, the intestinal fortitude or the mental capacity. And I don't mean that in a negative way or derogatory way, but someone who just doesn't like numbers, someone who doesn't like spreadsheets and looking at uh, revenue and profit loss statements and all of these different things that go into a seasoned investor who's actually looking at the financials, someone like Warren Buffett, who will talk about P&L statements and this uh, revenue and that revenue and why he invested, you know, in Coca-Cola back, back then versus, you know, now, um, what do you say to someone who just doesn't have that capacity to learn the investing game? Is that where someone like you as a wealth advisor come in and help these individuals and help them plan? You know, what, what is the purpose of a, of a wealth advisor? And forgive me if that's an elementary question. I just want to make sure that there, there's a true definition back there. You know, you're not, you're not someone that I come to and say, Chris, should I buy Ford stock today? It looks really good. My friend told me I should buy Ford stock. Should I buy Ford stock today? Yeah, so that's, that's, a, that's a really big question. So you really gave me two. Let me just take it in order presented. Sure. If, you, if you're not the numbers person, um, you know, if, if uh, you know, stock market and all this stuff is not your thing, on one hand, you have to realize that the truth of money is that it's just a vehicle to get you where you want to go. Mm. If you don't have much of it, you don't go very far, plain and simple. So, so I, I run into people all of the time and have for the last 20 years that say, ah, money's just not my thing. Well, guess what? I tend to find, and this is my pure observation, I've not tracked it every single talk uh, that I've had. A, I don't have this weird journal where I go, this is what they said. And but I largely find that for finance, people who are not financially minded, who say investments are not that thing, guess what? They don't tend to have a lot of money. Mm. Now it's possible that your business, right? The thing that you do professionally generates a lot of income. So you can still have money, but largely people who say it's not their thing, they don't have a lot of it. And so, um, you know, obviously there's people who've inherited money or there's widows. So there's always exceptions to the rule, but you don't, it doesn't take a whole lot of finance knowledge. It doesn't take a, it's more about discipline, right? So if you, if you really didn't try to monkey with the, the numbers a whole lot or fool around with the, the numbers a whole lot or portfolio or investments, and you simply have the discipline of saving consistently over a long period of time into something that took a right amount of risk you know, that's where the whole modern portfolio theory starts to work over the long run, or even some of your, if you ever look at what's called an efficiency frontier, a blend of portfolios and things like that. Um, over the long run, it tends to work out, right? Albert Einstein said one of the greatest gifts we have is the power of compound interest. Yep. You know, some people say it's the eighth wonder of the world. And so if you start charting how making whatever it is, 5%, 8%, uh, year over year over year, of course, it doesn't happen the exact same every year, but all of a sudden it goes from steady, good and consistent. Then you get to the 10 year mark and it starts trending up. Like you're going uh, from Florida up to the foothills in Georgia. And all of a sudden it goes parabolic uh, in, like by year 30 and year 40, where the, the money is compounding so quickly and so strongly that it's the value of investing and taking risk over time. So when people say investing is not my thing, great. You don't have to be a genius at it. Just be consistent. 
Mm. And anybody can be consistent because, you know, you take a shower fairly consistently, you brush your teeth. You should. And if you could, if you could build into somebody's mindset that the concept of just, what is it? Uh, the old adage of paying yourself first, right? You set aside money for you first, pay yourself first, be diligent with it, keep your debt low. And that's, that's like 65% of it. And I made that up off, you know, that's part of the 87% of all stats that are made off, uh, made up in the, in the moment. 60% of the time, the, they're 100% right. That's right. That's right. So I, I just think that, and then you can, you can, you can chase that rabbit hole further. There are people that I work with that are better equipped as like day traders, um, statisticians, technicians, they're better at it than I am. So if I can transition to your second question, uh, that'd be good about what my role would be. Um, my role is my chief skill set is counsel. Um, whether I can professionally market that or not, my ability to sit outside of someone's life and listen to them, whether it's an hour or three hours, hear what's really going on to be able to figure out where, um, where their barriers are, where their issues are. Like, hey, here's really what the problem is. Or uh, helping them con to connect a few pieces. I had that happen this morning. I had a friend of mine who couldn't get through a couple of obstacles in her life. And I said, well, here's what's true. I mean, this is what the, this is the true thing. And this is what you should go after. And it was like a light bulb went off. So um, since I can't professionally market that because I'm not like a counselor or a therapist, I mean, marriage counseling happens all the time in my office, right. whether I get paid for that or not, because finances are the biggest argument that most couples have. Um, and so being able to help someone get into alignment with the right path is, is the kind of a ooey gooey metaphysical way of saying it, but um, planning, sitting down, this is what you make, how much can you save? Where do you need to put that savings? Is it a 401k? Is it a Roth IRA? Do you make too much money to even contribute to a Roth IRA? Mapping those things out, um, money management, uh, we do all of that in-house. Uh, a lot of advisors these days, they outsource it to some bigger firm, which is to their advantage legally because if someone else does all of the real work and they just sit back as a quarterback and say, or as a Monday morning quarterback and say, they did a good job for you. Don't you agree client? You know, and they say, yeah, or they say no, like, well, great. Well, we're going to fire them. And so they kind of keep themselves out of the performance discussion because they're just they're just the professional intermediary getting paid to sit back and look at them. And so maybe there's real due diligence there and looking at those investors or investments. Um, but so if you can find somebody who actually, um, because there's a difference, right? If, if, I'm, if I'm a financial advisor who's just trying to connect you with somebody else who manages the money for you, then I don't have as much responsibility to be blunt. Um, to know what's going on with the economy and the markets. And, you know, it's kind of a joke that we have, uh, have had over the years that with your typical financial advisor, both the client and the advisor are surprised by the returns every six <laughs> months when they sit there and open up statements because neither one of them have looked at the crap in the last six months. Um, and I'll, I'll be real with you. There's been times in my career where I've done that, you know, early on, I was just trying to gather assets, especially at Morgan Stanley when it's hustle and bustle, you got to go, 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 go. Well, you can either be an asset manager or an asset gatherer, relationship manager, and more and more advisors are becoming the relationship manager uh, and not the actual money manager. So I have um, me and my business partner, Susan Moore, we have a, 
um, uh, an equally challenging responsibility of managing those uh, relationships, but also studying and staying on top of everything that's happening uh, to be able to make decisions for our clients and advocate for them. And um, hopefully, hopefully it's a value add, you know, so it's, it's planning, it's uh, helping you figure out what your obstacles are. Sometimes it's encouragement for a client to go after a job opportunity. You know, no, you, you can do this. This will be worthwhile. Well, what if it doesn't work out well? Well, I tell you what, let's just set aside some money from your investments. You're worried about what could happen for three to six months. Well, if it didn't go well, what would it look like to have a little bit extra cash for three to six months just in case, right? So that's part of the value of savings and those rainy day funds and emergency funds is that it feels boring to some people. Like my money's not working for me. But when you need that cash and you don't have it, well, guess what your only solution is? Credit cards. Yep. Which trust me, that's one of the reasons it's so easy to get a credit card for most people is that uh, there's a lot of money to be made in it. So anyway, I, I could definitely go on and on about that too. But if you're dealing with a quality advisor, they're at least going to help you get a blueprint and figure out where you're going and, and maybe be there to verbally process, well, where do you want to go? I don't know. Well, great. So you got to go somewhere, you know, even not choosing to invest is still a choice not to invest. You're still choosing, even if you feel like you're not an investment type person. So hopefully that professional is an advocate for you of making you face the hard decision. It's like, great. So you don't know if you did know, what would you say? Like, don't give me that. That's an excuse. And they don't say it that harshly. Right. Right. So yeah. And if it gets into budgeting, I haven't had to do budgeting for somebody in a long time, but you can break down a budget and, um, you know, hopefully it's a percentage based budget, not a dollar based budget, but, um, yeah, we yeah, had, so I, uh, we had, famed author and friend of ours, uh, Hans Johnson on the show. And, and he's got the breakdown that models a lot of what uh, we talked about earlier. You, you alluded to the richest man in Babylon, pay yourself first, saving 10%, giving 10%, investing 10% and living off of a minimum or maybe even a maximum of, of 60%. So, I mean, there's a formula out there where it doesn't say, well, I make $1,000 uh, every you know two weeks. So I need to save 900. If, if that's where mm -hmm. the percentages work out, you know, it does become a lot easier. And I know personally, when I started using that model, I mean, and I'm such a geek that I actually have it in a spreadsheet that when I get paid from a client, I plug it in. So if I get a check for $5,000 for a website or whatever it is that I'm working on, you know, I plug that number in and then boom, I've got my you know, 20 to 30% in taxes that I know I've got to set aside. Then after that, I've got my tithe. I got my 10%, my savings, 10%. I've got my 60% that I can live on. And then I've got my play money, which is what I put into my investment accounts. So the, the consistency is definitely, I know has paid off for me in the last year and a half of, of really seriously looking at our financials and speaking as someone who just didn't have a plan, who was just mm -hmm. kind of like, when I retire, I retire. But I didn't ask myself that question of what are you going to live off of if you're not working? I'm like, well, I'm just going to work all my life. Like, that's just what you do, right? <laughs> that's what you're yep. supposed to do. And, yep. and not having that plan in place really was eye opening because you really do just kind of fall on your face and you're like, holy crap, I have not done the right thing. I have not been a good steward to myself, to my finances, to my family. And, and what Hans talks about a lot is you're not leaving a legacy. And is that legacy going to be debt or is that legacy going to be of wealth and abundance and yes. an orchard 
that your family, your children and your children's children have the potential to have success. And there's a question in here that I'm about to get to is, is wrapped around the instant gratification society that we live in now. Mm-hmm. Is, is investing even something that someone who expects those type of things? Like we talked about building a house, even before you build a house and have a blueprint, the most important thing is the foundation. If yeah. your foundation is not in a place where you're even mentally ready to say, okay, I'm going to take 10% of my income and, and pay myself and another 10% and I'm going to invest that or pay off debt. You know, if you're not even mentally set up to do that, should somebody even be jumping into Robinhood and, and buying stocks left and right? I, wow. So it's like this. If you are not at the place to, it's kind of, it's a, it's a little bit about commitment in my opinion. If you're not at a place to stay committed to keeping an eye on um, like a trading account at Robinhood or whatever it is, whether it's them or TD Ameritrade, doesn't matter. I mean, they're all giving away free stuff these days, mm-hmm. which is interesting. Um, it, I would be super cautious about that. And it's not just to stay away from it, but it's like, we're not talking about having, you know, uh, a magazine subscription. And if you don't use the $12 that you gave to car and driver or whatever it is for that year or 20 bucks, that you're not going to be any worse for the wear because it collected more dust on a table than it did being opened up and, and perused and studied and enjoyed and whatever. This is, this is involving your money. And mm-hmm. You know, Hans speaks really well to it that most things that are recommended by professionals are more speculations than they are true investments because they require something to go up in value and you're just guessing about whether that happens. So if you're going to start taking your hard-earned cash and you're casually committed, but you're just all about the instant gratification and that doesn't go the way you think, the probability that you stick with the discipline in the long run or that you have consistent success is just not there. And so you can make a lot of mistakes and get discouraged and quit. You can make a lot of mistakes and pay attention to what you're doing and journal and say, I tried this, this didn't work. And you can you know, find and vet out exactly where you uh, went awry. You know, I've had clients who, um, I, I shouldn't say clients, some clients maybe, but I've had relationships where uh, I'll talk to them and even, even once so far this year, and they'll say, yeah, I didn't even look at my statements. I haven't looked at it in like six to 12 months. And it's like, you may have gone to an online trading platform because it saved you the most money. But if you have the lion's share of your savings in an online trading platform, and we go through uh, this February, March downturn, or what we think may be coming, which could be more dramatic somehow, or, or maybe uh, more uh, a stronger correction, maybe a greater recession or even a depression in some cases. Like how much money are you really saving by going to an online trading platform? You know? Uh, and then that also begs the question, does the advisor advocate for you and try to protect against the downside? Most advisors don't. They just tell you to write it out. So it makes me a, a little bit, uh, I get like a, a wrench in my stomach when I think about that. Because Robinhood, if things are going well, that makes you feel like a genius. It feels good. You put a grand in it. It turns to 1500 real quick. You're like, man, I can do this. And then all of a sudden you have like a February 
hits you and it falls harder and faster than it ever has before. And you think, well, wait a minute, this is not why I got into this. And then you start doing the wrong thing. So the, the reason I say be careful is there was a story and I, and I read the news and I should, I should recall it a little bit better, but I believe it was a 17 year old gentleman who had started with a Robin Hood account. I was just about to talk about that. And he got into options and had could a $700,000 margin call and he killed yeah, himself. Yeah. And I mean, there, there was another one when there was the glitch in Robin Hood where it was essentially giving you free margin, like infinite margin. And he had a guttural reaction. Like you could see it in the TikTok video or whatever it was and you can hear it. And he was just kind of like the, the, the huge lump in the throat animation that you see on Tom and Jerry or whatever. And you could hear the, and you could see the 70,000. 76,000 in the, in the red, in the negative. So yeah, this yeah. instant gratification and access to, oh, I can just throw 10 bucks at it. I can throw a hundred bucks at it. I can throw a thousand bucks at it. You're just, you're playing with invisible monopoly money at that point. And, and it's a video game. And I think the gamification aspect of these trading platforms, and I'm on Robinhood and I'm on TD Ameritrade, but I, I use it sparingly. And when I know when I'm going to put it in, right? But there's there is a gamification aspect to it of truly watching the the little ball bounce up and down, up and down, up and down. And if you don't understand the market cycles and why early trading or late trading in the day is good or bad or indifferent, you know, if you're just throwing money at it, it becomes a very dangerous tool and a very. I feel like Robin Hood. They they definitely they're like the candy crush of of investment <laughs> uh, platforms and interfaces. I mean I mean truly they they designed that with an aesthetic and with a psychology that would how do I how do I say this that, that you would see at, at you know um, slot machines in Vegas. You know it yeah. it has that aspect where it. it, it it takes it takes your decision kind of outside the realm of reality and and makes it makes it seem like this is this is something that's just happening in virtual space and this has no real effect or uh, you know um, implication to your life. I, I think that was probably done on purpose. Um, if it wasn't, you know, my bad for assuming that. I guess, but but definitely from from my perspective, it definitely seems like. It incorporates a lot of uh, uh, the same psychological uh, mechanisms that most games and online games incorporate. There's something to that because when you when you start looking at former developers of Facebook and Instagram, and they come out and say that no, we're designing these apps to make you addicted, to make you stare at it longer. I can't I can't say that Robinhood or these other trading platforms aren't. You know, I mean, they're a business. They would be foolish not to. They, <laughs> the, they, they would the be foolish not to. You on there? Yeah, and, and and you know, if it gives you a dopamine hit when you perform a trade or you buy a stock on Robinhood, then you're, you know, whatever percentage more likely to do it again, right? So, I mean, they would be foolish from a psychological perspective and from a business standpoint not to incorporate uh, those things into their platform and their interface. Because it's too easy at this point. I, yeah. not, not that that's a bad thing. Because again, I think we've seen a lot of millennials. I think we've seen a lot of younger generation getting into investing. I mean, I can't go to, well, this is the algorithm speaking, but I can't go to YouTube without some sort of Robin Hood entrepreneur telling me, you know, the best three ETFs that I should be buying today on Robin Hood. 
you know, everyone's looking for the YouTube money that's associated to investing as well, right? Like I'm your new financial advisor because I put my face on camera and told you I made some money on Robinhood. Like that's the criteria. And, and as I a feel like there's going to be some major lawsuits over the type of behavior in the future. Well, that's my question to Chris. Like as a financial advisor, what is your, and if we need to tread into the opinion disclaimer aspect of it, what it, what is your feelings and thoughts on this culture of millennials and, and young zennials even that are getting on YouTube and throwing their portfolio in front of everybody and saying, look at me, I'm winning. I bought these three stocks and now, you know, I'm up. You know, what is, what is your take on that quote unquote financial advisory role that they're taking on YouTube? Um, man, there's so many ways, so many directions <laughs> to go with this. Uh, I mean, well, they always they always have in their videos. I'm not a financial advisor. You shouldn't listen to a guy on YouTube. It's almost become a joke that they have that disclaimer. But at the same time, these guys are getting millions of views. It's not like yeah. it, they're just one off. That disclaimer only goes so far to because like you do reach a threshold where you are advocating your profession or your professional knowledge in a topic, and then then boom, you can get hammered. So I, I don't I don't know how how in the future, they, they shield themselves. I don't think they're going to be able to. I think Facebook will probably end up cracking down on that behavior. I, I'll, but I'll let Chris talk about that further. Well, um, yeah. So I think that, well, let's, let's, let's look at it. You've got, it, it all rolls back to, to the heart of man, right? There are people out there who uh, are probably skilled. They have great ability. And they have a desire to help other people with their vision. Let's, let's point to Hans. Hans Johnson is probably a good example of somebody that I know. Um, I know he's, we're not best friends, but I know him fairly well uh, in the scheme of things. And as I look at it, except for him selling a book or, you know, monthly group, group coaching, he has a vision of seeing a million families um, um, with an established legacy of uh, caring for their children's children, right? Um, and so he's probably out there. He's doing his best not to get harangued into giving exact you know, stock advice and all that. He's pressing you. No one will do for you what you're not willing to do for yourself. So you need to own it, own your crap, own your heart, own your future. And there's, there's a lot of wisdom and there's a lot of safety in him saying that because he takes his risk in other places. He's not necessarily a safe person. Let's be real. He's very direct and uh, very quick to, to be disruptive, which is awesome. But then you've got this whole other realm of non-regulated, um, um, you're just individuals who can be genius marketers. Um, maybe they've got a couple of wins, but you miss the 200 failures, which actually makes them poor and they have a false lifestyle. And all they're doing is just preying on you, you know? And so, and then there's a whole bunch in between as though Hans is some perfect symbol. I, I'm not trying to say he is, but he's just somebody practically to point to. But the, the issue that I have is I get fired up. Yes, I'm biased. Yes, I'm opinionated. But when it comes down to it, uh, if you listen to uh, an interview that that I do with a friend of mine on Mondays, uh, David Pavlik, 
I, I find myself saying something. And then also, by the way, God bless this dude's heart who has to watch every single thing that I say. He watches every video that I do. He'll have to review this podcast. And if I say anything that's promissory or is too leading or whatever, I hear about it. Man, you, you can't have David rave about you so much. It's almost like a testimonial. He can't call you an expert. And it's like, well, you know, because I'm regulated, it doesn't mean that I'm any better necessarily. I, I can't say that. But it's like, you know, Quentin, to your point, it's like people can give all the disclaimers, but if they end up hyping their product and they hype it enough, you can put disclaimers everywhere. You're still doing and speaking outside of turn. And so, you know, Dave Ramsey is a great example of how you go too far with endorsement and the SEC will crack down on you. And the, the little guys, they probably don't have enough bandwidth to deal with all of them. But Dave Ramsey, with his endorsed local provider, uh, as it relates to financial advisors, I was one of the guys in between transition of working with Dave Ramsey. And um, uh, I became whatever his new thing is, uh, Smart Vest Pro or something like that, SVP. So there's other ELPs. Um, you know, for real estate or insurance or whatever, but the SEC came to him and said, look, unless you're going to develop your own investment business and you're going to become a broker dealer and you're going to be responsible for what you say, you need to stop this endorsed local provider thing for financial advisors immediately. Well, guess what? The system works. He's making money off of that. He does good work, but it's a money maker. I know that because I was paying a thousand dollars a month to get access to it. So yeah, I had to be- That's a great example but I'm still paying into that system, whether I get referrals from him or not. And I just happen to be in a, a geography. And so it's, it's a massive system. It's, and, and I don't fault it. It's like, great, if I were Dave Ramsey and did everything he did, guess what? I would probably be Dave Ramsey. So there's no judgment. But at the end of the day, like it, have you ever noticed how he used to say you should have 25% large caps, 25% international, whatever it was, 25% small caps or 25% bonds used to kind of give you some of those breakdowns. You don't see that quite as much. It's been my experience and maybe I've missed it, but he's had to dumb down some of that language because he's not licensed, he's not regulated. And if people just do what Dave Ramsey says and, the, and there's actual issues, there's, it's harder and harder to take that guy to arbitration or to bring a lawsuit against him uh, because he's not regulated. Whereas if you have an issue with what I do and say, arbitration is right there. I mean, that's the reason I have, I think right now I have $10 million a year, a year in malpractice and E&O insurance to really guarantee that if I do something wrong, there's insurance there to make somebody whole. And so you've got so many guys out there that, yeah, maybe they've had some good success. And there's some great guys who've done, you know, newsletter writing, even looking at like, uh, I mean, I remember a decade ago, easy, watching Porter Stansberry and now it's Stansberry and Associates. He's got some good cred, but, um, you know, but I've not vetted every single investment idea because he can say whatever he wants, as long as he puts it the right way and positions it the right way. Um, you know, this is not guarantee, you know, these are just our opinions, but at the end of the day, if you take action on it, that person's still responsible. You know, I did uh, my second interview with David um, months ago. Uh, one of the guys, who uh, was listening into the show uh, by about the fourth week, he called me and said, hey, so I'm in the process of cashing out my 401k and putting it in my bank. And I was like, I'm sorry. He said, yeah, you said to cash out your investments. And I was like, oh my God, no, that's not what I meant. Don't do that. Um, you should leave it in your 401k. There's no need to take it out of the 401k. I said, cash out your stock positions. 
And so I felt the real world accountability right then and there that that poor man left unchecked would have liquidated a 401k and paid all those taxes just to put into a savings account for what? So I felt that and I don't, I don't like that. And so, you know, Sal, when you asked me your question earlier and you said, okay, that was a bunch of language that we don't have. I didn't even mean to fire off that vocabulary, but left unchecked, I, I want to be responsible. I can't be perfect, but I want to be, and you also, you can control what you say, but not what people hear. There's all those things, but I want to be sure that what I say actually connects, it helps people, it makes sense to them. And Lord willing, it actually adds value. But you've got these other guys, they could give a rip. It's about a lifestyle. They're living all this stuff. They're living it up. And, you know, our firm, because of a friend of mine and his involvement when he was on staff, we've been part of an FBI sting operation that has to take down a Ponzi scheme for guys who call themselves hedge funds that were targeting uh, Christians. And so that was super awesome. Like, I feel like we did. That was one of the biggest wins of my career was when a client called me. Um, hopefully I'm not, um, expounding too deep on this stuff, but client called me and she said, Hey, is this legit? She was living in, I think Kansas city at the time. And it was this, this couple who presented very well and, um, they were in a church. And one of the things you'll find is that anytime a pastor agrees with somebody or endorses some type of leader or speaker, their congregants, it's called affinity marketing. They just rush to that person that's been endorsed by this, this, this figurehead, this spiritual figurehead. And so uh, she said, is this guy legit? Because if so, what a blessing it would be to all of us. And um, she sent it to me. And, and uh, I, have, I had a guy on staff who was a former hedge fund manager. And he started doing some research, come to find out they were not legit, and engaged the FBI. And the FBI said, hey, would you wear a wire? And he spent two days um, with this individual and they ended up getting taken down and thrown into jail. So it's like, you know, there's a thousand or 10,000 people like that, but to back to, to land this plane, I, I feel like there should be greater accountability, but the SEC can only go so far, you know? And so they spend more time scrutinizing me, which I'm glad I pay for. I pay to be audited and things like that. But there's so many other guys that just don't give a rip and the pain that exists on the other side, because I've actually been personally ponzied a decade ago with somebody who checked all the boxes and I do this professionally. And the guy was an absolute liar and he just was remarkably talented in communicating. He had knowledge, he had industry knowledge, and he was just doing it for ill-gotten gains. So I've been on the wrong side of that deal and I just don't want to be somebody who would do that. So will the SEC crack down on it? It would be way easier, Quentin, to your point, if uh, Facebook would start to uh, have some better regulation there, right? That free speech, because it's, it's an amazing chassis uh, and vehicle to, to reach tons of people. So it's something's going to happen. I, I think that just given the fact that, you know, people are more technologically advanced now than their parents or their grandparents. But if you look at the statistics, Americans are financially worse off than their parents or their grandparents at this point. A, a vast majority of them, many people who are middle class have fallen to lower class and upper middle class have even become lower class. So I think people have a, a lot less, well, I don't know that they have a lot less disposable income, but they certainly manage it poorly. But, uh, but some people definitely do, right? And, and uh, you have these people on Instagram and Facebook and YouTube are basically 
you know, they're, they're kids that come from not always, but most often, you know, privileged backgrounds and they pass their, uh, you know, parents or whomever house or belongings or whatever off as their own. And then they recommend stocks or recommend you purchase this or that, or do this strategy or that strategy. I see it as the modern day version of carpet bagging, you know, basically a, a person who is better off than you taking advantage of your plight or your uh, lot in life to try to financially benefit themselves and uh, either through Patreon or some sort of uh, merchandising or whatever, um, or, you know, taking their class or subscribing to something. But I do actually think, especially as the stocks and uh, hedge funds and mutual funds and recommending different products uh, financially is concerned, I think there will either be regulation that comes out of that or, or an expounding on current regulation or the SEC or the government will encourage Facebook or YouTube or Instagram to crack down on it if, if they just don't take it upon themselves to do that, which they, they very well might. Yeah, no, I, I think that's well said. It's funny how you talked about um, the carpet baggers and the people who are in, better, in a better stead, uh, capitalizing on people in a lower class or who are um, at a lower standard of living. That sounds like what a lot of the elites do. Sounds like a lot of their systems is genius. You know, the 2% or the 1% of the world. Oh, yeah. Um, well, I mean, a lot of the elites, their grandparents and great-grandparents were carpet baggers. You know, yep. People can look into that. <laughs> they, they really yeah. were. Yeah. Chris, can you go into a little bit and, and again, treading on the opinion and disclaimer aspect of, of what you can and can't say, can you go into a little bit of what you're seeing in the patterns of the market and how should people be reacting and, and taking their money? So you, you alluded to the fact that with, with your show with David, you know, you, you said cash out of all your equities quite cash out of all your stocks is is that still something that you feel is relevant should people be slowly trickling back into the market should they still be holding on to what hans talks about you know stack your tier one capital you know should we be holding on to our savings what are some kind of non-absolute advice that you could give the audience to kind of get started where should they be looking in the next three to six months given the atmosphere of the market this the socioeconomical turmoil i mean we just had china burning documents in houston you know are we about to go to war with china we have a coin shortage like all these mitigating circumstances for for most people they're probably like i'm not touching the stock market what are you talking about i'm not going to do anything i'm just going to bury my head in the sand what do you what do you say to those individuals Wow. I love it how you, you stack like four or five questions and, <laughs> and I'm like, well, okay, I can, I can respond to those. Um, I'm trying to get at least come. one of the five questions answered. If I if you okay, that's okay. <laughs> this is the best effort for sure. Um, so yeah, to be clear, what I was saying about um, what I have said in the past with David is that um, what we have done for our advisory clients, which is the fee-based clients that we serve, where I'm not compensated to have them sell. My compensation is actually more performance driven as a fiduciary. And that's just a legal way of saying, I have to put your best interests ahead of my own. Was that riding out this stock market um, may not be in your best interest if we're right. And so what we've done for our advisory clients, the, we have clients who are just purely fee-based. We have clients who have some long-term investments that we don't really fool with. We just let them ride. 
because that's the nature of that solution for them. But the, the, the mainstay of our practice is that advisory piece. And what I've said uh, over and over again on, on the show with David is that don't just ride this out. So it's, yes, it's an invitation to evaluate your portfolio and are the stocks that made you so successful in the last five, 10 years, are those gonna be the same um, stocks, same portfolios, same mutual funds, ETFs, or whatever, they're gonna make you successful in the next five to 10 years. Well, history tells us that there is a big rotation every, whatever, 10, 15, 20 years between what was successful and what falls out of favor. We are supported by Aerial Digital. Aerial Digital is a full-service digital marketing agency that specializes in custom-designed websites for small to medium-sized businesses. Whether you need a simple one-page bootstrap website or you're ready to start selling your products online with an e-commerce website, Aerial Digital is equipped to help your business. Go to aerialdigitalmarketing.com slash newnormal. That's A-R-I-E-L digitalmarketing.com slash newnormal and save 20% on your custom website today. Um, so yeah, and, and just to, to, to give, to cite some sources, look at the success of Japan in the late, in the, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, up until 1990, 89 to 90, where they dropped their core interest rate down to zero and actually dipped into the negative interest rate environment. Japan has lagged the rest of the developed world for decades. They've now got a fertility issue where I think it was five, six, seven years ago, they started selling more adult diapers than they did baby diapers. Um, their level of indebtedness is two times their earnings as a nation, their GDP, their gross domestic product. It just means what's the top line revenue. If your household income was a hundred grand, then a hundred thousand would basically be your GDP. So if they're at seven trillion in GDP, they're like four, 14 plus trillion in debt. And so uh, it's been said, and I would have to agree that Japan is a nation, uh, as a nation is the bug waiting for a windshield to hit it, uh, or a, a bug just looking for a windshield to hit. So, uh, and so as a result, Japan, like, you know, when I was a child, I'm in my early 40s, all of my products were exported made from Japan. You had Sony, Sanyo, Toshiba, all these great names. And then all of a sudden, it's now, uh, um, Samsung, LG, and the likes of it, which are mostly Korean, right, supplying these products. And so, so they lagged for decades. Um, EU, Europe, same thing. They've been lagging. Um, they were very successful for, for decades, and then they started falling behind. NASDAQ, great example. Tech bubble runs up into the late 90s, and it took 15 years for that recovery to happen. Well, if you held it in 2000 and you quote wrote it out, it took you 15 years to get your money back. When is that ever a good investment solution for somebody? Now the ability for someone to rotate assets like that is not common. It's very hard. It's not easy for us to do. I don't say that we would do it perfectly every single time. Heck, it would have been easy for us to just abandon everything at the bottom of March of nine and just go headlong into stocks because we could have made even more money uh, and get out of the assets that we held. So, um, to your next question, Sal, uh, I should have written these down, man. These are all good questions you're asking, uh, which is why I'm so intrigued to be here with you. Uh, the, the thing is, is that you have to settle in your mind 
is there some crazy contrived conspiracy that all of this is just like just pulling triggers on everybody to get lead them towards a direction if you're playing chess or 12 level chess when everyone else is playing checkers is there some crazy big conspiracy and i have to read it because my, my clients are all over the place i've got crazy constitutional conservatives and hyper liberal you know trump is the antichrist kind of person which actually has more christian language on it but people just are livid about that man and i, I would say that uh, it's either this great big conspiracy or what if it wasn't that means we're actually more screwed by the way if it's not some oh really big narrative I actually about that. <laughs> just I, I just talked to sal about this two weeks ago i said you know, everyone is concerned that the coronavirus is a government conspiracy with China to institute the new world order and the, the masks are incorporated with like 5G and you're going to get a vaccine, which is the mark of the beast and all this. And it's this grand conspiracy that the entire, you know, there's actually a, a, a uh, an equation that, that breaks down how fast a conspiracy would lose its secrecy and become public knowledge based on how many people are involved. So you're talking about literally tens of millions of people involved or more just in this country, okay? So there's no way to keep something like that secret virtually. It would, would break down in like months. And The, the secret it, is compartmentalization, Quentin. You got to understand yes, compartmentalization. Yes. <laughs> and the, so globally, you're talking about hundreds of millions of people being involved and it's just impossible. And I said to Sal, I said, you know, it's very unlikely this is a giant conspiracy. What if this is just what it is and what if this is our peak control and this is the peak efficacy of the government and this is basically their legitimacy crisis and everything is this bad because they literally cannot control the events in the world any longer and we've lost our hegemony and we've lost our financial prowess to a degree and we've lost our manufacturing base and they just don't have control anymore and they can't even keep you know our country quarantined from a virus they can't provide us the PPE we've paid for for the last 70 years. They can't do their basic duties and functions. I said, what if it's not a conspiracy? What if this is just it? That is so much more frightening to me than any conspiracy because that means that they, they literally don't have control. And anyone who can get a one over on us in the next few months could actually just kick us down because we're blowing in the wind right now. Yep. If someone just came up and just kicked us really hard, that may be it. That it may be over, and that's that's way more frightening than uh, a, a some sort of totalitarian government. I, I tell people all the time. I live in Texas. I said the rate we're going in Texas will be a failed state in 20 years, and we'll look something like northern Mexico. I said, "What do you want to do about it?" I said, "Well, I want to move to Washington D.C. area." I said, "Why? That'll it'll be totalitarian like China." I said, "Well, I don't know. In the future, do you want to live in China or do you want to live in northern Mexico?" You know, because I can tell you, I would rather live in China. It's a way less scary environment than northern Mexico. Unless you're in so, the boxcars. Yeah, I guess, I guess unless you're a Uyghur. <laughs> but, but uh, you know, even then it may not be as bad. The Uyghurs aren't being hung from bridges. I don't, you know, I, I think that uh, people are almost reassuring themselves with the grand conspiracies. And, and that's concerning. It, it, in a way, provides people comfort that, the situation is all under control and it's actually just to provide more control and stability for your everyday lives, even though you don't really like it when in fact they might have begun the process of losing control. And I think that's the ultimately scary 
vision of the future, right? Like that's, that's a scary new normal of what if, what if there truly is a legitimacy crisis and what if, you know, you start to try to piece together the, the Q anonymous post, the conspiracy of nine 11, the, this conspiracy and that conspiracy and how they're all tied together. And it all goes back to the sinking of the Titanic and trying to institute the federal <laughs> reserve and, and all these different yeah. things, like it's all connected. And, and what if it really is? And to Chris's point that you said earlier, what if it isn't, then what now, what do we do? Chris, should I yeah. sell all my stocks? Yeah, I made that post a week ago where basically I, I, I tie this huge conspiracy together. And at the end, everyone, you know, people who didn't really read what I said would have assumed that I was talking about this brand conspiracy when all I was talking about actually was just really rich people taking advantage of crisis to further the crisis to sell you product that you didn't necessarily want. And it was taken away out of context. Yeah. Um, so, so you, you, you threw out a couple of headlines Sal, that are really curious to me. And, and I, I do, I do believe though, that if, uh, and I, and I've not looked it up. Someone told me 10, 15 years ago that the word conspiracy is a legal term by origin. It just means two or more parties agreeing to a common end. Now that to me, that's true. Uh, is, really freeing because my wife and I conspired to get my kids to eat their freaking dinner and do yep. their homework. Well, do their I homework when they were actually going to school. Um, but uh, so I do believe that there are times where, I mean, let's be honest, if we were, you know, sailing across the Atlantic um, and we knew, you know, let's say we were all the captains. Um, well, maybe it's the Nina, the Pinta, and Santa Maria, you know, maybe it's just, and we're, we're flashing uh, some kind of code overnight between, you know, the first mate or whatever. Hey, we've got, we're running out of rations. The other guy flashes back, hey, we've got bubonic plague on the lowest level uh, flashing back. Hey, we've got these issues. Does it benefit a leader or a captain of a ship to come out and say, hey, guys, we're screwed because you're certainly no. not going to make it not make <laughs> landfall. But if you say, hey, let's let's batten the hatches a little bit, you know, let's let's increase our pace 10 20 percent let's you know cut the rations ever so slightly let's say this is going to go great we're going to be fine and let's press on towards the goal well technically there's a conspiracy in there and every now and again i find that the people that we depend on to be in control of a situation aren't case in point in 2018 at the end of the third quarter somewhere in there maybe it was uh july august um 2018 um, the Federal Reserve Chairman came out and said, hey, we are not going to, uh, things are going great. We're going to actually start to raise interest rates. And this is where I wish we could show a chart because it's sick. Uh, we're going to raise interest rates, which is what you should do if markets are at all-time highs, unemployment is very low, things are going great. You should raise interest rates because that's like the most fundamental um, thing you can do for monetary policy. When interest rates go up, money is harder to come by. You tighten the money supply. Things are not looking good. You lower interest rates. You loosen. You have a more liberal money supply. Money is easy to get to, and that hopefully is used to expand, right? So, so um, when the chairman of the Federal Open Market Committee comes out and says, hey, we're actually going to raise interest rates, and the market pukes, like, 
20, 25% in the matter of a few months towards the end of 2018. I don't know if you guys saw that. That's oh, yeah. way. And then all of a sudden by January, like, hey guys, we're just kidding. So we're actually going to start cutting rates the exact opposite because now the market's down through 2019. The market rallies like crazy, right? Um, that lets you know they would have never, sorry, this is my opinion, they would have never said we should raise interest rates to have an about face. The Federal Reserve should not do that. This is like mom and dad um, raising a 12-month-old. And that 12-month-old needs mom and dad to make some clear decisions because their life in one way, shape, or form or their well-being is at stake. The Federal Reserve is now one of those roles. Uh, maybe the president is too, who knows. But by, by default, the Federal Reserve is one of those influencers. And if they go, oh, sorry, we're actually going to lower interest rates, that should tell you something. I don't have the stats on how many times they've done a complete pivot, but that's what that was. And so it tells me that they're not reading this right. I don't think that that's part of a conspiracy, you know. And then all of a sudden, in August of last year, uh, the overnight lending market uh, dries up. And so there's, there's 24 primary dealers, big banks all over the world, 11 of them in the United States and about 13 outside the U.S. And they let their assets be lent overnight to, to banks and other hedge funds and other uh, investment institutions because there's certain reserve requirements or they need certain liquidity. And then overnight, um, in August of last year, J.P. Morgan pulled out of that. One of the biggest banks in the world pulled out of being a primary dealer and the Federal Reserve rushed in because overnight lending rates went from about one or 2%, depending on the maturity, like to 10% and the overnight lending market froze. Well, that repo market, that repurchase agreement market is like a lifeblood to the global economy. And JP Morgan, uh, Jamie Dimon comes out within a couple of weeks. He goes, yeah, we just decided to stop letting everyone use our money. And then the Fed, Federal Reserve kicks in 60 billion a month and more 100 billion, I think by February, they had kicked in some several hundred billion dollars to keep the overnight lending market alive. What am I telling you? JP Morgan didn't just decide overnight to pull their money out of um, that float, that, that, uh, that system. They knew something was coming, so they chose to get away from it. And what did they buy? They bought long-term US treasuries. Well, guess what is one thing that we bought for our clients within two or three weeks of that announcement beforehand? We bought long-term U.S. Treasuries for our clients. Quick fun fact, since 1981, long-term U.S. Treasuries have gone up six times more than the stock market. Right. Most people don't know that. So I'll let you guys nerd out on your own. I can't tell you that's what you should buy right now, but all of a sudden, most financial advisors don't even understand that. Um, so my point is, is that if, I think that there are some conspiracies, I think there are some bits of knowledge because the elite have information we don't. Look at the senators who happened to dump all of their stocks. You know, I was six months early before coronavirus. I did not know that that's what would cause all of this, but we believe very strongly that a recession was coming and the market would correct so hard so fast that we couldn't get our clients out fast enough and gains would be erased overnight. So we did what we did as a firm and our clients actually made money. Those advisory clients went up 10, 20%, give or take, depending on which day. Let's just say single digit to double digit returns when everybody else went down. And that was like uh, a watershed moment for us. And my business partner, Susan, she'd already done that in 2007. So for her, it's old hat. She's been fighting that fight for a long time. But uh, yeah, back to you, back to your point, you know, Sal, you talked about coin shortage and all these different things. 
it just doesn't pass a smell test to me that people are hoarding pennies and nickels. You know, no, uh, it, I, I, I more quickly agree with a narrative of possible inflation simplifying it. We've already been, we're, you know, and, and any, the other thing is, as I study leaders and leading many people, who most of which aren't paying attention, you got some people paying a lot of attention, you have to cascade messages and layer learning over days and weeks and months and even years. And all of a sudden, when it becomes adopted, it's more readily available. So things like blockchain. That scares me greatly. If, if our fiscal policy has finally outrun our monetary policy. We might be there. We that's, might be there. That's pretty troubling. Well, you know, if, if you needed to make massive changes to a currency, it's a lot easier to do that if there's actually nothing in circulation. You know, if it's all sure. digital. Absolutely. And from what I've studied historically, um, it always looks like this. Hey, major meeting of the G8, super secret. And then within a couple of days, there's a massive coordinated announcement. And it sounds like this. As of midnight last night, this is what the currency value is. As of midnight last night, this is what we're doing with the currency. And there's no chance to react. Um, so that doesn't mean go put everything in gold or Bitcoin or something like that necessarily. But it just means that you have to be thinking about it. So Sal, that's one of the biggest takeaways for me is pay attention you know your response times aren't years like they used to be sometimes it's months or sometimes it's weeks you know what i mean so you see a coin shortage don't just be like ah, i'm sure it's no big deal take a take a moment and make a decision about what you might need to do to respond to that yeah and if anything proact not react you know and that's very so, hard to do right now. I mean, we're, we've talked about this a lot on the program that we're, we're living life in this two week bubble, this two week cycle of what's the next doom bingo piece that's about to play out. Right. And, and, you know, now apparently an asteroid supposed to hit us next month. So that would great. be great. <laughs> Wait, did that, did that, that exercise turn out to be like an actual thing? It wasn't just an exercise? No, that was, that was a legit exercise that happened in 2016 where they were planning for, you, you know how the government does these exercises. Right, right. And essentially they were saying that this comet would collide with Earth in 2020 and it just so happens it would be September 2020. And then you start looking at what's happening in space again to chris's point pay attention there's asteroids out there that are quite close to hitting earth but not really talking about it that much then okay now this is full tinfoil hat we had an episode where we actually literally wore tinfoil hats so here this is a tinfoil hat moment there, it was really funny <laughs> there, was, there was a trailer for a movie for um gerard butler's uh oh you're talking about greenland yeah greenland. i posted that <laughs> it was no 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 check this out it was scrubbed from the internet when it came out now you could call me a crazy person maybe it was leaked it was scrubbed from the internet for a solid few months it was out there it got scrubbed you couldn't find it on youtube you couldn't look for it it was just gone and it what looks is that horrifying. movie about? Honestly, the the movie looks horrifying. The movie is about asteroid collisions. When does the movie come out? September. <laughs> come on. <laughs> no, he's he's serious. I actually posted it, and I was like, I made a, I put up a funny gif, like you know, of Steve Carell at the office saying, you know, please don't, you know, it, <laughs> exactly. And uh, I because I saw because I saw the, the the trailer, and Gerard Butler's an okay. I mean, actually, he's done some pretty good movies, but like, he's he's kind of like. A hokey B movie, yeah. He's like a hokey B movie actor for the most part. 
This movie actually looks terrifying. It looks like you're that movie with John Cusack, the 2012. 2012. This yeah. this looks like what 2012 should have been. Like this looks like a horrifying movie, and the well, trailer is actually really unsettling. And for for our audience out there who's who's yelling at us right now, they're like conspiracies are real. Here are conspiracies. This is an MSN.com article. Here are conspiracy theories that turned out to be true. I'm going to go through them really quickly. So this is going to be rapid fire. I'm only going to read the headline. The Dalai Lama works for the CIA. That turned out to be true. There were gay bombs. The U.S. Air Force considered using pheromones as a weapon. Uh, John Lennon was under surveillance by the CIA. Let's see. The next one says water changes frogs sex. The Canadian government built gaydar machines. The U.S. government investigating UFOs. Illuminati and the U.S. uh, National Security Agency, the NSA. There's a conspiracy theory that says that if you go and type in Illuminati backwards... I did this. When, once it, I posted that, I, I did it and it works. <laughs> it, goes, it goes to the NSA website, which it does. It, it does, <laughs> yeah. Government spies on your internet use. We know this because of Jon Snowden. Uh, let's see, what's the next one? The U.S. government, a lot of this has to do with the government. How interesting. The U.S. government used dead bodies for radioactive testing. Osama bin Children, Laden. infants. <laughs> Osama bin Laden was captured through a fake vaccination program. The CIA ran a fake vaccination program and they had bin Laden's DNA on file thanks to his sister who lived in the USA. So that's interesting. Polio vaccine caused cancer. That's turned out to be true. False testimony led to the Gulf War. You can read into that, whatever you'd like. Sugar industry funded research un, un, I can underplaying risk of sugar consumption. So the the list goes on. There's about 12 of them. Um, Conspiracies are real. I mean, to to a certain degree, how much you want to connect them. And, you know, does the thinking of the 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 sinking of the Titanic lead to the Federal Reserve? I don't know. (laughs) But there's some interesting correlations there, aren't there? Yeah, they directly are. Yeah. People should read The Creature from Jekyll Island. That's exactly where I was. As as a Georgia resident, I would agree. With the guide stones. And talk about carpetbaggers. Well, I was talking about the Georgia guide stones. Yeah, no, I'm talking about, I'm talking about, oh, yeah, yeah, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, I was just about to say Jekyll Island's off the coast of Georgia. And when you find out some of that information, it's like, well, how many people don't even realize that the Federal Reserve is not a de facto government entity, but they've got power. Yeah. like the government does they actually have more authority than most other publicly known entities that i'm aware of they they truly rival the treasury department and um i mean if talking about carpetbaggers earlier that was literally a round table of carpetbaggers that, that basically uh set up a private centralized bank that conter- controls our monetary and fiscal policy weird it's very yeah. weird and then you can get project paperclip and other things like that. But that's another episode, guys. <laughs> Chris, to bring it back around, you know, with with the vision of the future, sh- how should people be proactive? You you brought that up. We should be proactive and not reactive. I think that was one of my final questions in that barrage of questions that I had for you. What are some steps? What are some things that can be practically done for someone? Again, using the the layman as our example, someone who isn't financially secure, someone who hasn't made a budget for themselves, what are some practical steps aside from picking up the phone and calling you today and and setting up a a wealth uh, advisory uh, 
system. What what are some practical steps that the layman can start taking now, looking at the patterns of the market, looking at the patterns of the economy, looking at news headlines and, and reading the stories, obviously. What are some practical steps that they can be taking, they should be taking, if they truly want to succeed and not just ride this out? Um, I, well, I think that the gift that we have is that what did you experience? Like do a quick um, self-inventory. What, what did you just experience through this whatever, first wave, first phase, first whatever of coronavirus? What weaknesses were just exposed in your life? Mm. Um, maybe you need more. I didn't have paper. enough toilet paper. Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, you know what cracks yeah. me up about that is people got like a year's supply of toilet paper and they had like, like five days worth of food. Right. Well, uh, there's a serious yeah. disconnect there. <laughs> no, it's so funny. Yeah. I mean, um, so, so there's a weakness. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Food, food preparation, um, dependence on a supply chain. Meaning if you're accustomed to grocery shopping three or four times a week and you don't keep a store of protein in the freezer, whether that's, you know, beef or fowl or, you know, fish, whatever it may be. Um, and you don't keep those things and you're, you're used to just everything is as you go, Amazon priming your way through life, that hurt. You got freaked out for a second. Yeah. You know, if you've been um in cities where you're really you're a little bit more clamped down and you can't get out like you used to you know what are you going to do if these things just keep getting prolonged right so what if you can't go out you know i actually have been out to dinner a couple of times in the last few months and it feels weird because i used to go out so much and take it for granted that going out is not and it's, we're talking about like cheap crappy georgia mexican food you know what i mean um and it's all of a sudden a delight because it's not I really took it for granted. So I think if you, if you slow down just enough and say, Hey, what did I just experience? Um, how can I be preparing? Right. Some of it's food, right. And is it perishable? Is it non-perishable? You know um, I think the next piece is I have clients and I have people ask all the time, should I be keeping cash? Should I be keeping silver? Um, and, and, and so I, I went through my, my first real brush with, uh, eschatology, just the study of like a biblical end time. Eschatology is just a fancy word of saying the study of the end of things. But eschatological, uh, biblical concepts for people who are to whom that matters, there's a lot of things that are playing out that can be some of the tributaries to that river of some weird cataclysmic end times thing. But what if it just doesn't happen as quickly as you think and it takes 60 years, not six months? Um, right that we're, 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 we're teetering on some of those things possibly coming to pass. So when I did that 10 years ago, I started making some decisions that uh, I don't want to be fully dependent on these, these supply chains, these systems, but, but then you have to draw a line somewhere because cashing out all of your savings and putting that into a safe actually doesn't help you as much as you think. Why would you really need that? Okay, the only reason I can find, and it, it, there could be many other reasons, the only reason you really need cash would be if your debit card, credit card, you know, your your Venmo, Cash App, or whatever doesn't work well, what's the probability? Because the system is predicated on that. So many things happen electronically. How long would the system go without Verizon getting paid? 
So everybody right. will be call, calling to fix that. Could it take four weeks? Could it take a couple of months? I mean, if some certain things were knocked out, like even if you go EMP and you start talking about that, you know, electromagnetic pulse and, and shutting down some of this, uh, you know, this tech infrastructure we have, some of those things could be uh, taken down for a long time. But the truth is there's so much need for this, this, the momentum to continue with life that I don't see the need for vast amounts of cash because... No, I, I don't see from a prepping standpoint, it doesn't make sense because if those things are like knocked out, your cash is worthless. And yep. if they're going to come back online, then you've just lost money to inflation. Yep. So then the next piece is I have people who say to me, well, gosh, I should be having gold and silver. Well, you know, gold and silver, I've heard it said, and I would have to agree that since the time of Shakespeare, the value of an ounce of gold was um, a fine man's suit or the value of a fine man's suit was an ounce of gold. And today, um, the value of a fine man's suit is about an ounce of gold, right? So gold historically, yes, it can be a chaos hedge. Uh, as, as Hans talked about it, as Hans John Johnson uh, talks about. Um, but it could also be a really good long-term holder of value. And by long-term, I mean decades and like half century, that kind of increment. Because if you were somebody, and I knew somebody who did this in 2010, it took all of their liquid net worth because they thought Jesus was coming back and the world was coming to an end. And 2008, 2009, it was just going to get worse and never recover. They put all their money in physical gold bullion. And so how did their heart feel when it went from, I don't know, 1800 down to almost 900 an ounce in the coming few years? That sucked. So it's, it, gold is very volatile in nature. Yeah, I think it's got a chance to go up. But uh, if you look at it over the last couple hundred years, it's kind of gone up, right? So it's still, um, uh, what I'm saying, still not speculating that it's going to be immediately valuable. But if you get silver, which may have greater utility than gold, because you're not going to send your wife out to get a loaf of bread with a one ounce gold piece, uh, a one ounce silver piece is possible. But then where's the commerce? I'm not trading my wampum belt for your, you know, the black powder musket. <laughs> We're not going to go back. Walmart's not going to take silver, right? Kroger, no. Public, Picket, Target. You're not going to roll into Target with a bunch of silver coins because guess what? Every other day they're going to get robbed. You know what I mean? There's no system in place to take that. But could it and be that's different? just not that's not legal tender anymore. I mean, that's that's literally barter system, and I don't see how a corporation can maintain accountability or proper journalization. On some okay. sort of precious metal barter, barter system. That's just ludicrous. Okay. I, have, I have 10 eggs and 13 chickens for this lovely three piece suit. Yes. <laughs> so, but, but then the, the, the counterpoint to that is a little bit may not hurt. What, whether that's 500 bucks or 1000 or $5,000. I've got clients who are millionaires and they may have 50000 in it. Well, if you're, if you're worth 10 million bucks, having 50 or 100 grand in gold you know, percentage wise is a small percentage of your net worth or even your liquid net worth, you know, so it's, it's kind of relative. And so when I buy stuff like, you know, gold and silver or whatever it may be, I look at it and say, I might need this at some point in the future, but it would be pretty neat to leave as a legacy for my children because there is a win-win. And I think that's the thing when you try to make some of these decisions is, is it, is it possible? Is it probable? And I think so many things are happening these days where I have to remove probability and just look at, is it now just possible? Because <laughs> I would never expect the things that are happening to actually be occurring right now in this day and age. Like you said, a two-week bubble. And all of a sudden, well, I didn't expect that coming. Um, it almost sounds so like 
a good financial plan is like having a well-balanced diet. You don't want to eat cake all day, but you also don't want to stuff your face with spaghetti all the time. Like yep. you should take everything in moderation. You should investigate and do some due diligence. You know, to Quentin's point, more people invested in toilet paper than in having good red meat in their freezer. Yeah. Yep. And, and that's just hedging. That's hedging all your assets. That's hedging all your bets on something like toilet paper, like as if you couldn't take a sock and clean yourself or go into the tub and clean yourself. Why was toilet paper? I, I'm still lost. We're in July and we started this show back in April. I'm still lost on the toilet paper thing. It's never made sense to me. I still can't wrap <laughs> my head around it. Yep. So that's the, that's like the, the concept of the bank run. Are there legit times where runs on banks may make sense? Um, yes. But the herd mentality just says you got a few people buying a toilet paper and all of a sudden something was scarce and it just, it was a self-perpetuating thing. You yeah. Know, it's I'm just sure. game theory. Yeah, that's it. So, um, yeah, I, I think that's probably a pretty decent start, uh, Saul, to your, to your questions about how to be preparing. It's what's practical, what's reasonable. And then you start looking at, as it relates to, to finances, like if we go into some type of a Great Depression, which is a big if, it's possible, it's increasing at times in probability based on the decisions we're making. Um, what if your portfolio, what if the stock market did what it did in 29 to 32, 1929 to 1932? And the markets went down 80, 90%. You know, what, what would we do? Buy the dip. Um, what's that? <laughs> buy the dip. <laughs> buy, buy the freaking biggest dip ever. Um, then it, it tells me to, to do like, if, if you're just getting started, the best thing you could probably do, just guessing, is picking up Hans's book and pressing through True Wealth Formula. There's so much, yeah. much of what we do professionally that's in that book. And I've not read the book, full disclosure. Uh, but I did pay to go through all of his classes just to see because you know, Hans and Danny are fascinating. Hans and his wife, Danny Johnson, are fascinating people to me. I love studying people. And um, I went through all of his classes and I realized there's things that we do professionally that he puts in that book. You know, like what I do, how I manage money. There's a couple of rules that we actually use. Um, yeah, the five so percent rules is something that I've been taking to heart a little bit more because I know when I first got into it and was just a wily investor, just putting money where someone told me to, or you know, sample portfolio that he he provides. And then I was like, wait a minute, I have way too much money in these REITs. Like forty percent of my portfolio is REITs. I might need to scale back and and go into the kind of five percent model. So there's definitely some good advice in uh, Hans Johnson book, and we've talked about it when we interviewed him, the True Wealth Formula. So that's that's a really great one to to pick up. Yep. And so I think that from that book, uh, if we're going into that kind of season and you've not made any changes to your portfolio and you just kind of let it go, man, you lucked out. Good job. Federal Reserve drops three trillion. Central banks all over the world drop trillions of dollars into their local economies. And then asset prices, meaning stock market, just balloon in those times. Uh, and you, you lucked out. And I would reevaluate the way you're managing money. And I would take a long, hard look and I would put some rules in place. Maybe within your portfolio, you're overexposed, like you said, Saul, and you got way too much of, I don't know, FANG stocks, probably these days, most people. Um, if only we had know, bought Tesla. 20, <laughs> What's that? If only we had bought Tesla. Oh, yeah. There, there are those. There are those. Um, 
but setting a rule. Like when, when do you draw the line about getting out? Do you have a system to communicate that? Mm-hmm. Your financial advisor probably not using a system like that if they're outsourcing everything to somebody else's model. Because that's what that, and that's, that's where this whole industry hides. It's like, well, if everybody lost money, then nobody gets sued. You know what I mean? So, but you zig when everyone else zags and now we've got a problem. So uh, I think those few things coupled with making some better general wellness choices, because we're, we're putting our bodies through so much hell these days, you know, burning the candle at both ends, caffeine charged days, you know, CBD sleep oil, you know, medicated nights. And I'm not faulting any of the above. I've done both of the above. In fact, I do some of that stuff, right? But like moderation. In the meantime, if you're, what is it? It's better to be a warrior in a garden than a gardener in a war. It's better to prepare to run a marathon than to be just a sprinter because most of what we're in is probably not a, not a sprint. It's more of a marathon. Those are the things that I think make sense because this endurance, we've got decades. It's probably not, Jesus is probably not coming back next Tuesday at three o'clock in the afternoon. So if that's the case, and this just gets more challenging, and there's not some crazy, the thing is we keep fighting to get back to where we just were. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's even the nature of people who are addicted to drugs. It's like every time you turn around, you're trying to get that first high back. So you do more and more drugs or different drugs to get that same initial release or relief. And we find because so many people, even Christians are programmed to want to find the safest, most convenient way to make it to the grave, the most comfortable way. You need air conditioned seats, you know, all the different stuff. Um, and I'm not faulting those amenities, but we keep trying to get back to where it was in 2019, like V-shaped recovery. We have it all over. But what if we actually slowed down and innovated? Because right now we're so, uh, uh, there's a better way to say it, but we're so not creative that we just want to throw money at everything. We just don't have savings. We just have debt. And that's, those are the things that have no they don't play out in the long run. They never have. No, I think they've seen this problem going back to the dawn of civilization. The Greeks did the same thing. The Romans, the Seleucid Empire, the Egyptians, and, and it, it all ended up actually getting them. So, I mean, we we can learn from their from their mistakes, or we can go the same way. It's the same thing with the Great Britain most recently, and and even the Soviet Union. Yep. Yeah. No. I, I my business partner told me. Uh, about a book. I've not read it, but uh, apparently it was a remarkable case study of, I think it was like 227 nations in history that had a rise and fall, uh, got into the same predicament we are, and only one nation made it through without an utter collapse, like a Roman civilization kind of collapse. And it was like Swaziland. (laughs) It wasn't Sweden. I don't, I hate to say it. I don't even know. I'm just, I'm a terrible redneck from here in Georgia and I, I don't know my geography, my history. And she, but she's an avid reader and she's uh, got a photographic memory. So she recites books and she'll tell you exactly what it says. And it's wow. terrible. I'm, my business partner is a former attorney and um, she hands me my butt every time we get on the phone. I feel like I'm a kid, even though I've been doing this two decades. So it's like, we don't, we don't work. There's no Dave Ramsey envelope system that walks us out of the problems that we're in today. You know what I mean? Like it's going to take something really remarkable. And for about 10 years, I studied pretty avidly the hearts of men. And I found there's two ways that remarkable changes uh, actually occur, like real character change, real trajectory shift. It's either uh, something very dramatic, like a, a wedding, uh, birth of a child, death, 
near miss in life, near close call kind of thing, or there's a few and it's less frequent. There's this all of a sudden audacious decision to stop doing what you've done. Like, hey, I've got to stop smoking cigarettes. And you just all of a sudden on a Tuesday go, go, to, go cold turkey. But that's not typically what it takes. And so if you live in a world where politicians promise one thing and then do another, politics, and they just want to keep everyone kind of happy, but they do what they really want to do, then it tells me that there's no aha moment that's going to happen unless it's something very dramatic. And I don't think it's going to be positive because there's no lotto that the United States could win. You know what I mean? So I look at that and I think I don't, I, I don't see a way out unless there's some, you know, supernatural, greater than us creator influence. And uh, I just don't think that's his main game. You know, I think he, he brought that influence maybe a couple thousand years ago and it's on us to pay attention to that. So the rest is written in the book. For sure. Quinn, you got anything else? Man, I do not. I think that was an awesome episode. I think this is, that was very insightful. This has definitely been very, very insightful and just a lot to think about, you know, for our viewer, for our listeners. And, and just, you know, if, if you're not getting prepared, if you're not being proactive in the new normal, you are just going, I mean, the result is just being reactive and being in a reactionary situation is never a good one. I just watched a, a short documentary on Tim Kennedy and he talks about situational awareness. And that's another facet of this whole new normal is just truly being situational, situ, situationally aware, no matter where you are, where we're talking about your finances, we're talking about taking a trip to town and going to Walmart whether you're online, what your kids are doing, just being situationally aware is absolutely vital. And Chris, as you yeah, know, I at think the preparedness, end, go ahead. I, I think preparedness looks, it looks different than people think. You know, I mean, a lot of people think, oh, I, to be prepared, I have to have a bunker and years supply, you know, years of food and, and you know, NBC gear, and I've got to be able to withstand a new, clear, you know, war and it's like man whatever that is that you're preparing for in that scenario i don't even know that you want to survive yeah. and i don't know if you do survive what type of quality of life you'll have or even how long once you emerge from your hole uh, you'll have i mean that's that's silly and it's not realistic and uh, you don't have to outrun the bear you just gotta outrun everyone else running from the bear yeah. oh yeah and that that's surprisingly easy yeah. <laughs> it's, it's not that difficult yes in a world where everything's value size that's become easier and easier Oof. no it's it's like you know i'm a guns and ammo guy but at the end of the day i'm not trying to bunk in or bug bug into my house like if there's some crazy military coming after me they've got more guns and ammo than i do i just need to defend absolutely Exactly. Exactly. That's good. Chris, as you know, at the end of every show, we like to ask our guests if they had access to a billboard, what would be their message? And we've, we've gone through so much. We went from your 9-11 story through your journey as, as a wealth advisor in crisis, how to start investing, a vision for the future and the dangers of investing. What would you like to give our audience as a billboard message what would be the takeaway that they should be um getting from today's episode wow um that's a fantastic question um uh, wisdom tells me 
Um, just give me a second to verbally process and I'll, I'll give you a sentence, but give me 30 seconds. Wisdom tells me that if, if you knew that the decisions you were making today caused a lot of problems in the future, you would probably reweigh some of those decisions. Um, and so something along the lines of live your life by design, not by default, that wow. type of flow. Don't, don't be a victim. You know, when, when you've been in a funky codependent relationship with the powers that be all around you, and they're not for you. And you just point your finger and say, well, I don't have any income. It's like, well, you know, it, ha- it, it rains on the righteous and unrighteous alike. You know, uh, we, we, we just didn't, weren't expecting all these medical bills. And it's like the harsh truth is if you had saved for the five, 10, 15 years leading up to that, you'd have the money to pay for the health related uh, bills, right? So I don't, I don't diminish the, the, but it's like, think, think about what does your last day on earth need to look like? What do you want to be true of you? And if you're t- tired of weighing 250 pounds, push away from the table. No one's putting a gun to your head and says, force feed a 12 pack of Krispy Kreme donuts to make yourself feel better because you had a rough day. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like if you can, if you can kill the victim mindset, you've won so many battles already. So probably living life by design and not by default because that's what the, the the system of the world is programming you to do because you're easy to control you're like a squirrel in the middle of the road changing your mind all the time about stuff that's even the wrong decision to be considering all together just get out of the freaking road stop trying to think about it go so yeah that's i love that live life by design not by default that's great that's really great. Can you tell us a little bit, just kind of a 30 second elevator pitch? What is the show that you and David host on Facebook? What is the the premise of the show and what do you guys talk about and how can they find that show? We'll obviously link to it in the description, but give the the listener a description. Yeah, yeah. So so um several months ago now, David Pavlik called me and said, Hey, I want to interview you on the Facebook live. What do you want to talk about, David? I just want to ask you questions about what's happening in the world. I'm like, okay. And what that has morphed into is me spending several hours a week uh, above and beyond what I do professionally, just studying to be able to talk uh, someone through what we're seeing and why we're, why we're saying what we're saying is a firm. And what that means is sometimes it's just a general headline, like, you know, coronavirus and that what I'm seeing right now in the last week or so is that you're going to transition from the antibody argument into a T cell argument because T cells have a lot more memory, there's more value. Am I a virologist? Am I an epidemiologist? No, I'm not. But I have to study that because if that has an impact on the economy and that it could affect your finances, um, then I'm willing to go there and, and learn about it enough to understand how it's like, what do we need to do? to be an activist with your finances and fight uh, and advocate for your legacy versus just being casual and letting time pass. And so Mondays are spent with uh, David and I processing. He usually asks me some questions. People ask questions live, but I do my best to answer them. Usually it ends up in a follow-up phone call, um, not where I sell them a bunch of crap, but just to be able to say, hey, I can tell you exactly what to do with your money over the phone when I'm licensed in your state and all that kind of stuff. But it's it's defending the thesis that this is not something that just all of a sudden goes away. And if you're not paying attention, at least we can put out a message to get you, uh, give you at least a primer to start that it's worth fighting for your legacy. And so most people just, you know, they just lay down. They just like, like the feigning goat or the, or the sheep that finally gets nabbed by the, 
by the raiding wolf. When they finally get to the point of the wolf grabbing hold of the sheep, they just stop. And that's where most people are. And you don't have to be that way. You know, sure. it doesn't have to be that way. So, and it, it involves finances, it involves economics, it involves preparation. Uh, I try to stay places where I'm a little bit more studied, where I'm a little bit more licensed. And when I get out of that real quick, I can give you a very casual cursory opinion. But uh, I try to stay in my lane mostly. Mm -hmm. I'm sure I screw it up royally, but that's that's the terrible elevator pitch about what we're doing on Mondays. And I don't I don't see us really stopping that. You know, that's there's following people who are desiring it. And so as a result, why wouldn't I keep doing what makes me better professionally anyway? That's great. And you can find it at facebook.com forward slash David Pavlik TV. And that's David D A V I D P A V. ILKTV.com. And we'll again leave a link in the description uh, for the show notes. Chris, I want to thank you so much. I want to take some time just to edify you and, and thank you for the wealth, uh, no pun intended, uh, of information mm -hmm. that you have provided to us. This has been very eye opening and, and very confirmational to just the lifestyle choices that Quentin and I have made in investing not only in our future for ourselves, but for our, our children and their children and, and truly leaving that legacy. I really liked your quote about live your life by design and not by default. I'm sure that's been said in other ways, but I really like the way that you phrased that one. Um, where can people find you as, as a wealth advisor with Abundance LLC? How can they reach out to you if they're interested in contacting you to get more information? Yeah, a couple of practical ways. Findabundance.com, F-I-N-D-A-B-U-N-D-A-N-C-E.com. Like you're looking for it and hopefully we can help you find it. Findabundance.com. Uh, we have people who still love phone calls, 678-884-8841. And if you're an email kind of person, dash off an email to connect at findabundance.com, three fastest ways to get us. And those things are monitored by all staff. So um, a couple different on-roads or on-ramps to connect. That's amazing. Christian, thank you again once for, for joining us and, and for giving us all the insights into being a wealth advisor and just kind of the, the playing field that you're, you're up against um, as a fiduciary. So thank you for taking the time out of your day to spend this time to, to talk about those things. And we really look forward to having a follow-up conversation with you as the markets turn, as, as things progress, either they get better or get worse. We're going to be here uh, with the new normal to, to kind of commentate on that and, and give our perspective of what it means to live in the new normal. So Thank you again for joining us. As always, stay safe and welcome to the new normal. <laughs>